Uh, we are, oh, maybe seven minutes late in getting started, but I want to give people a chance to find us. Uh, that's, you must admit, though, those Lua members who've been with us year after year after year, we are not tucked back in a corner in any way, shape, or form. So we're now living in a more high-priced neighborhood, apparently, and that's, that's terrific. Um, I think pretty close, yeah. So now everybody's off in the corner looking to find out where Louie is instead of here. Anyway, I want to thank you all for being here today. Um, we are Library Users of America. Uh, we're going to have several speakers this afternoon. There is a segment for between 2.45 and 3.45 during which there will be continuing education credit provided for those who are doing that. And I'll give you the appropriate start and end numbers so your paperwork will all align with the stars and all that kind of fun stuff. As, uh, as I'm required to do, I'm supposed to give those numbers just before and just after and not allow anybody to joggle my elbow to, so that they can sneak out early or arrive late. Anyway, we'll deal with that when the time comes. First thing we want to do here today is to introduce those who are in the room. So, I do not have a mic runner, unless there's somebody with more vision than me in the room. I could possibly help you out, sir. You could possibly do that, couldn't you, Michael? I could. Thank you, if you would be so kind. But I would swear that they said that this section had, had, uh, had codes. And you're kidding. All right, well, I'll run the mic for you anyway. Gloria Broderick from Pasadena, California. Judy Wilkinson, I'm the vice president of this August group. Oh, I'm Deborah Kendrick, Cincinnati, Ohio, and St. Petersburg, Florida. Alan Limley, Jackson, Mississippi. Ralph Smitherman, Brandon, Mississippi. Paul Edwards, immediate past president of Lua from Miami, Florida. Norman Dolkey from Oklahoma. Tom Frank from Vermont, chair of the advisory committee for the new ABLE Library. I'm the one that we switched the name in Vermont. Bill Wright, Louisville, Kentucky, and I am the president of Tri-State Library Users. Adam Rushville, Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm the Lua treasurer, and therefore I, I take pride in letting you know that our dues are $12, and you're more than welcome to come and see me to pay me, or otherwise I'll try to come and see you. Sherry, oh, I'm sorry, Sherry Molengraf, Jacksonville, Florida. Jean Johnson, Nashville, Tennessee. Carrie Johnson, Nashville, Tennessee. Sheila Young, Orlando, Florida. Jane Coronas, uh, Silver Spring, Maryland. Bill Jones, Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you. Mike O'Brien, Troy, New York, near Albany, the state capital. Home of Uncle Sam. Teresa Curry, Gonzales, Louisiana. Jane Lund, Bloomington, Minnesota. Dennis Hamilton, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. <clears throat> Just a sec. Nona Graves uh, from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And one of the best things I ever did was get a life membership in these organizations so I didn't have to bug the treasurer. 
Hey everybody, it's Mike Moran from New Jersey, I think. I'm also a member of the Florida contingent, so I never know where I belong. Hi, this is Debbie Grubb. I'm from Bradenton, Florida. Scott, I'll be coming to see you. Harriet Stanton from Indianapolis, Indiana. Steve Stanton, Indianapolis. Donna Siren, St. Louis, Missouri. Chris Hunsinger, uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And somebody just walking in here. This is Rebecca Bridges. I just found the meeting. <laughs> Arlington, Virginia. Okay. And Mr. President, that concludes the people present. Did I miss? Who did I miss? Back row. Oh my goodness, I didn't see you back there in the suburbs. I'm a coming, I'm coming. Here we are. Linda Adams, Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm coming to you. Judy Dixon, Arlington, Virginia. Oh, how could we miss her? Goodness gracious, okay. Mr. President, that concludes who's here. While there is a podium mic up here, I'm uh, taking medical privilege and sitting down so that my vertigo doesn't put me there unintentionally. So again, I want to thank everybody for being here this afternoon. Uh, you know, I tell people every day, uh, and at my former employer of the Carroll Center, uh, I saw newly blinded people on a regular basis and they have a tendency to be a little bit uh, sad sack about their loss of vision. And I understand that. We all went through that, or there are days when I still go through that. But I tell them there's never been a better time to be a blind person. And one of the reasons I believe that there's never been a better time has to do with our access to information, the printed word, um, television, audio described plays, all of the different things that we now can have access to. Now, can have access and do have access are two different things. If your um, local theater doesn't bring in an audio describer, you're not gonna get audio described plays. But it's not because it's not available, it's because you haven't advocated to get it where you're going. Uh, and advocated for the funding to make it all happen. I don't. Don't deny that at all. The, the second thing is um, access to movies. And now, going to a movie theater anywhere in this country that's accepting digital content, which pretty means anybody who's not showing you know, um, silent films pretty close, must have the equipment for you to be able to access that. And then, of course, there's this little thing called libraries. And your public library is funded with your tax dollars and therefore ought to be accessible to whom? You. So I'm kind of curious. In this room, how many of you have been to your public library in the last year? Very good. And still can't use Libby? Yeah. It's a, it's a digital download service, I believe, is it not? So um, nonetheless, we worry about the future of access to the written word uh, because we know from experience that um, technology giveth and technology taketh away. 
And we have to keep on top of all of that, as do those agencies who serve us specifically, but also all those agencies that serve us as part of the larger community. We always have the pleasure of having Karen come by and talk to us. Now, of course, Kim puts her on the main program and she gets to say all the big important things there. But what they don't get there is a chance to ask questions. So I'm going to turn the mic over to Karen and she's going to tell us a few things just to start out, get the ball rolling. But we're going to spend most of our time here asking questions, getting answers, giving advice, being consoled, you know, all of those things that are part of what's called a conversation. So this is a conversation with Karen Kinninger, the director of the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Thank you. So where shall we begin? You know, the question comes up periodically about all the other services that are out there that are providing material that some of us have access to. And inevitably, I think the question may come up, and it has to some extent already, why do we need to have human narrated audio? Why can't we just use text-to-speech? It's getting better, why not just use that? It costs so much less. And then there's the question of, well, you know, old Bookshare would like to solve your problems for you, so why don't we just switch to something along those lines? And what are the answers to those questions? Well, I think, I think the answer to those questions is complex. I will say that I use text-to-speech day in and day out. I also use Bookshare on a fairly regular basis because they have things we'll never have. What is the fundamental reason that we have the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, soon to be the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled? And I think it's because in the United States, we have from very early on valued free public library service for everyone. Now, we haven't always had the accessibility piece of it, obviously, but that's the role that I see NLS playing in, uh, for people who can't use standard print. We aren't going to be everything to everyone but we are a free public library service so that anybody who can't use standard print for all the usual reasons can have the same access and the same comfort and ease in reading a book as anybody's neighbor does who goes to their public library. Does that make sense? Yes. So, what is NLS today and where do you think we should go tomorrow? I mentioned this morning that we're looking at a, a, a couple of really major changes. One of them is the digital braille e-reader, otherwise known as a refreshable braille device. Um, that's not very toothsome in my opinion, I like the e-reader better. Um, and the other is the next generation of um, talking book service. And we're looking at with the e-reader, we're looking at introducing something which some of us have used very effectively for quite a while and are very comfortable with and some of us have never used and will find an it initially, no matter how we simplify it, it'll, we'll find it a little bit complicated, more complicated at least than opening the page of a, of a hard copy braille book and just starting to read. And we're also looking at digital material, which we already have a digital talking book, but we're looking at taking that digital talking book and either streaming it to Alexa or Google Home or streaming it to uh, some other portable lockdown device. And the question then becomes, can all of the people that we serve use that technology? 
some of us use the touch screens on our iPhones and find that although they are for the most part, at least a lot of times, not always, accessible in the strictest sense of the word, they're kind of a pain to use. <laughs> I mean, you know, scrolling through pages and pages of stuff, hunting for one specific thing in, in, in a file. They're, they're, not, they're not ideal. They are accessible, but the usability of them and the, the you know, could, could be improved. I'm not quite sure how, but it could be. So we're looking at, looking at the people that we serve, the people, primarily I'm looking at the people who aren't already using iPhones or Android devices and using BART and that sort of thing. And we're saying, how can they readily use a digital device so that they, the frustration level is not there, the discoverability is there, the usability is there. They can get the same enjoyment out of their talking books to, as they have been able to get out of the talking books traditionally. So we're looking at a voice user interface. Now that's something that, that's the way that you use Alexa or Google Home. That's the way that you talk to Siri. And if you do that, you know that it's getting better, but you also know that it's not ideal either. Um, you know, if you don't ask Alexa for exactly the right thing in Amazon Music, you will get some bizarre thing that you never want to listen to. <laughs> um, so we're looking at digital, um, at this as, as our primary interface. We're looking at being able just to talk to the phone or the, the device, whatever that device actually looks like, and just give it commands and get what we want and get them fairly quickly. And one of the big challenges here is going to be searching a large catalog for something somewhat obscure um, and not having to spend, you know, answer 100 questions to get there. How can artificial intelligence be harnessed in order to make that search quick, easy, and appropriate? Those are some of the questions that we're looking at that we're we're going to be doing a lot of research on. We're also going to be looking at and doing research like focus groups and in-depth interviews, that sort of thing, with people who have or are starting to use this type of interface to see where are the stumbling blocks, what works, what doesn't work. Uh, if you don't say the right word, what happens? And if you, you know, how can you always say the right word? And as we age, we don't usually get better memories. I would that we did. <laughs> so, so remembering the exact phrase that got you the book that you wanted might be something that's a little bit out of reach for some of the people who use the service. So this is, these are the kinds of questions that we have on the table. These are the kinds of things that we're looking at for um, implementing something new. We're also looking at how do we deliver it. If you have Wi-Fi in your home and you're pretty tech savvy, you just hook it up to the Wi-Fi and you're off and running. But if you have Wi-Fi in your home and you aren't tech savvy, the Wi-Fi in your home is used by your spouse or your child or somebody and you never use it. Or if you live alone and could potentially have access to Wi-Fi but, but don't use it, how do we help people get connected? How do we make that easy? Um, you know, and then there's the whole question of if we need to support Wi-Fi, or probably not Wi-Fi, but probably cell service for certain people who don't have it, um, how do we pay for it? These questions are all on the table. They, we don't have answers yet. I believe we'll get answers. We've got some good ideas. We're making some progress, but um, this isn't going to happen tomorrow. We're looking at probably, I'm saying five years maybe from now, um, which seems like a long time, I realize, but we're hoping that the talking book machines and the system that we have in place now will, will be um, able to carry us at least part of that way. Which brings me to one other thing I'm just going to mention, and that is that if you happen to be one of our BARD users who happens to have a talking book machine um, Somebody's battery's running out up here. Um, if you happen to be a person with a talking book machine and you happen to be using BARD on your mobile device or on your Victor Stream or something else and you're not using your talking book machine, 
it might be helpful to return it to the library. I have one, I must confess, sitting on my headboard, gathering a great deal of dust, <laughs> um, which I should turn in because I, I'm just, I'm not using it because I'm using other options. One of the things that we're gonna need to do is to, to um, use those devices for quite a long time, so just a thought. Anyway, with that as an introduction, I would open the floor to any questions about that or anything else. Yes. Okay, I'm going to once again ask uh, Michael if he'll mic run. Your, whose device is this? It's dying. I think it's the battery on yours. Yeah. It. Um, I just have a fast question. We're talking Wi-Fi, but in five years it's going to be 5G. Can, can you give us your name and where you're oh, from? Oh, I'm sorry, Chris talking? Hunsinger from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay, great, thanks. Mark Lee's library. So, and what's my, your question? My question is. Um, we're talking Wi-Fi here, but in five years, it'll probably all be 5G. So, I mean, are we really, are we really um, going to be able to keep up with technology? One of the reasons for using a digital device is, as opposed to building a device as we have done in the past, is that we're looking at the potential for um, off-the-shelf devices and that they would not expect a 20-year life cycle out of them either. So they'll be rolling in. So, so as time goes along, we will be upgrading those devices on, a, on an ongoing basis. Therefore, we believe that we would be uh, able to keep up with the technology from that perspective. I agree that 5G is probably what we'll have. Some places, other places not. So. Um, that's that's the, the plan for keeping up with the technology because right now we have a, a stable, static system using the talking book machine and the cartridges. Um, it's limited and it's not expandable, but with you, using an off-the-shelf device, um, you know, the latest, um, I don't know, Android phone or something, as we move forward, I think we can do that. Hi, it's Steve Bauer from California. You mentioned this morning about the Braille devices, uh, Braille ebook readers. Are you uh, going to put out bids for folks to develop one from scratch uh, to your specifications, or are you talking about using existing devices for that program? And also, I think you mentioned two devices, and I'm just wondering, uh, uh, would there be differences between the two, or wh why, why two different devices? OK. Um... The answer to your first question is somewhere in between. <clears throat> we are looking at existing technology, existing devices that will be adapted um, to our, our, our requirements, not specifications. Um, those requirements have to do with the things that we believe need to be in the device. Why two? This is an, um, an interesting question. Um, the reason that we have two devices is that neither device has stood, withstood the rigors of the NLS program. Um, NLS hasn't done this before, and putting our eggs all in one basket seems to be a risky ploy. Um, we don't know what the repair cycles are going to be on these machines. We don't know how, um, how they're going to hold up. And so using two different machines we think is going to give us some advantages in that regard. Will they be the same? We will be working with the developers on the devices and they will be from two different places and they will have two different technologies in them. So they won't be the same. We will be looking at whether we can get the same um, structure for the commands so that that will make life a lot easier for support. But that's basically why we have two devices in the, in the plans at this point. We actually have got the contracts with two developers. 
um, in order to begin the process very, very soon um, of the development. So those contracts are already in place in response to the requirements that we put forward. Okay, Karen, the mic runner has a, a question. Uh, over the last 10 years, you're using an increasing uh, percentage of books where you're reproducing professionally recorded books, and they're excellent and very enjoyable. But I know over the years there has been quite a cult following established for certain talking books narrators. And it has to bring the question to mind, are we completely phasing out talking books narrators eventually, or is it still going to be a viable position? And that brings me to the second part of my question. Uh, I had a client that I worked with a few years ago who was a crack shot braille reader, won the braille challenge in our state, and uh, has all of the bona fides and capabilities to do it, who wanted to establish the vocational goal of talking books narrator. And the vocational rehabilitation people who were not real creative kind of went crazy and said, what? That's impossible. And it kind of reminded me of a time when my totally blind uh, wife, uh, who was my fiance at the time back in college, uh, was able to get some books that we both had to read for a class in Braille. I couldn't got, could not get them in recorded form or uh, in uh, large print, so she was my reader. I turned that into the state and they wouldn't pay that either. <laughs> so uh, what about the uh, vocational possibilities for uh, people who are blind as talking book narrators, given the uh, capabilities with refreshable braille, et cetera, provided that they're still going to be living, breathing, talking books narrators? Well, to answer your first question, I believe that part of NLS's mission is to make available things that nobody else is making available. So although we have been using a lot more commercially available books so that we didn't have to, to narrate them ourselves, we still intend to do a, a solid core of human narrated material. It may be less than the 2,000 that we used to do, but it also may be more complex. And the reason I suggest that is that we are looking at more complex material to narrate, the kinds of thing you would never find in commercially recorded material. And we're looking at Im implementing more of that into our, our, um, our recording programs so that we can make those kinds of things more available. That would include better, you know, more image description and, and more markup and all that sort of thing. To answer the question about a, a blind person being a, a narrator, the only thing I would say about that is if they can cut it, I wouldn't have any objection to it. We don't hire um, many narrators. We certainly don't hire anybody full-time as a narrator. Those are all hired through our contractors, so they're the ones that would make those calls. Okay, thank you. You had a question, Laura? Um, yeah, yes. Um, I I would, I, it's Bill Wright, Louisville, Kentucky, and I would like to go back to the, um, to the Braille displays for a second, and I'm wondering uh, why the uh, orbit was not considered, or, or if it was considered, um, why, why is it not being used? Federal contracting requires a very particular process. And all I can tell you is that that process was followed very carefully and that the decision that was made um, did not include the orbit reader. We, there is a, that, that's all I can say about that at this point. Karen, this is Paul Edwards. I want to ask a, a follow-up question to that, um, which really has to do with the new Braille technologies, such as that developed by the, by the Orbit Reader and, and developed by the BrailleMe. Um, and, and I guess with, with particularity to the Orbit Reader, um, there was a process that was gone through that involved uh, a good deal of international um, cooperation 
with a, de with a view to developing a device uh, which uh, was more durable, less expensive to repair, uh, more, more viable, and an 8-dot cell. And, and I guess my question, my, my question is um, whether you gave any consideration um, to the, 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 the new technology which had been developed and implemented, um, particularly in, in order to create an opportunity to develop um, inexpensive braille displays. We provided a, what we consider from the federal government perspective a fair and open competition. And the criteria that were used were used on all applicants. And the results are what they are. And that, honestly, is all I can say. Coming to you, sir. Thank you, my friend. Hey, it's uh, Mike Moran. Um, I think one of the best kept secrets for years was that we as blind people had the best readers. This is before uh, the public had access to uh, <laughs> books on tape and so forth. And uh, one of my concerns now is sometimes I'll download a book and it was recorded in Oklahoma or Texas and by well-meaning people, but they're not professional. And uh, I hate to say it, but I, I usually delete those books because they're just not read with the same quality, with the same uh, um, professionalism that we're used to. And I'm concerned that there's going to be more of that and that the, the uh, quality uh, that the library has been using is going to go down. And uh, my second uh, question is, is it possible for uh, in the future for the machines that the library issues to have the same features as the Victor Stream. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so you keep asking me two-part questions. <laughs> the, the first, the answer to the first question is that I believe that it is a benefit to the NLS program to share the work that's been done in our network libraries. No, they are not usually professional readers. Actually, some of them are, but most of them are not. But it's either have that book available or not have that book available. And the, to my opinion, the value of having the book available is worth something. The lady in this section of the room waved something. Oh, and, there you are. Uh, thank you. Oh, you had, there was one more question. Okay, I'm, I'm not finished with my, my answer, if you don't mind. Um, there is also on BARD, if you're a BARD user, you can, you can flip a switch that will just take those completely out of everything that you see, so you won't even see them. Um, if you really don't care for them, that might be a, a good thing to do. The second answer to your questions, I'm not sure what you mean by all the features of the Victor Stream, whether you mean the keypad or whether you mean the fact that you can get internet radio on it. The download? Yeah, to download Bard books? Yes, it, it will have that. Hi, I'm Sharon Strakowski, and I might have missed it this morning, but with the next machine. Hold on just a second. Um, Deborah, we'll get you in a minute. Go ahead with the person would, with the Would mic. the next machine have some text-to-speech capability for some narration? Yes. Well, That's a given. Thanks. This is Deborah Kendrick. I just wanted to add a little bit of anecdotal information on the blind narrator front. Um, I, too, had a long fantasy of becoming a talking book narrator because, you know, I read to my kids for 20 years, and, you know, I, I'm a really good reader, um, and I love it. Anyway, so about 10 years ago, I can't remember now who it was, but the Rushables would know I talked to somebody at APH and uh, was very encouraged, like, yeah, just submit a CD. You need a, um, 
uh, a digital recording this many minutes long of nonfiction and this many minutes of fiction. I never followed through, but I'm just saying the opportunity is, is there. And the other anecdotal bit I wanted to add is that I have um, uh, come to know somewhat a blind Canadian who does work for Audible. He reads from Braille. He has a home studio. Um, and uh, he reads from Braille displays and uses studio recorder and sells uh, recordings commercially to audible.com. So there is somebody already doing it. Cool. Harriet, uh, no, <laughs> no, I don't think so. Harriet Stanton from Indianapolis, Indiana. And first to comment, I am so thankful to have access to any book. I will read it anyway, whether it's text to speech, an unprofessional narrator, I don't care. But my question is, what are the criteria that are used for selecting the libraries to, to uh, go into the pilot program? I would love to do it but I don't know what the criteria are. The pilot program for the Braille e-reader? Um, the pilot program for Do you mean the one, the pilot? Oh, the pilot program for the new Braille uh, Okay, display. for the new Braille device. Uh, sorry about that. That's okay, I thought that might be what you were talking about. Um, the criteria for the libraries has been worked on, it has not been finalized. We are um, working on the whole plan for the pilot, and it hasn't been finalized, so I really can't tell you exactly what it is. But it will be based on the library's capacity to actually manage the pilot, which is going to be a pretty heavy lift for the libraries that are, are selected. So, um, And then the, I think the libraries will make the selections about the patrons who are part of the project. Um, no, I was just asking. I was just getting a clarification. But this is this. Okay, my apologies. What is this for again? I know you mentioned. Uh, what what was this for that libraries are going to be getting? Or uh, it's it's for the Braille device that we are developing, um, the Braille e-reader, for digital Braille. The question was how many libraries? I think we're looking at starting out with. Don't quote me on this because we're not final with this. But we're looking at starting out with four or, and then I think moving up to 12. We have 23 Braille lending libraries in the system, I think, um, and eventually we'll get to all of them, but I think we will start out um, with fewer than that, for sure. Okay, um, question and a comment. My name is Carrie Johnson from Nashville. Um, <clears throat> uh, my comment is, speaking of people who have low vision as uh, talking book narrators or audible book narrators or any kind of audio book narrators. Here's a fellow who has very low vision and uh, who reads a lot of books. And uh, some of you may have heard of him. His name is Stephen King. He used to um, have his kids read to him. So that's how you know he's a low vision fella. The other thing is, um, I think the policy at NLS is to have very, very few books that are abridged. Uh, I've always heard that's a dirty that word. That has been our policy, yes. Okay. Um, unless it has changed in the last few years, the only copy or uh, version of the book by Barack Obama, which is uh, Audacity of Hope, was an abridged version. I believe he read it, but it was abridged unless that has changed. You might want to check into that. Thanks. Okay. I am not aware. You're saying that the NLS copy, which we probably got as a commercial item, was abridged? Wave your hands. Other questions? I'm up here. Oh. <laughs> Mr. President, Mr. President. Thank you. Um, so, when people talk about NLS, 
we have to keep in mind that they are the producers of books through contract. They're the producers of playback equipment through con uh, contractors. Yeah. But the service that we're used to is the service that comes from our library. In my case, you know, Perkins Braille and Talking Book Library. When you're doing your whole digital future envisioning of things, I noticed, I, you know, I noted that you were talking about uh, duplication on demand, which is putting more responsibility on the local NLS affiliated library than in the past. How involved have those libraries been in working out what this future is going to be? I also think about you know, the repair of the refreshable braille devices, um, having to train patrons how to use whatever device they bring to the party, uh, and those kinds of things. I have, um, at each of our conferences that we have the, the library we have with the libraries, I have an open forum in which I ask them to bring all concerns um, and comments, constructive, you know, criticism, everything to to us. Um, and they're quite vocal about the things that they think we should do and the things they think that we should not do. Let me just clarify something about duplication on demand, though. And that is that although initially it seems like we are putting a burden on the library, we're actually making life easier for them because what happens is that the staff of the libraries have less work to do because the way the system is set up, it makes no, you don't have to pull and shout books. And if you talk to the libraries who are actually using it now, they'll tell you that, that it's really been a godsend. I heard the lady first, but now I don't see her hand. Right. Okay, you don't look like a Oh, you look like a lady. Okay. Thank you. Okay, good, good deal. And along with the duplication thing, some, uh, Jean Johnson, sorry, from Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and to my left, my husband, Carrie, volunteers at our local library for the blind. And one of the things that he does as one of his volunteer jobs is making the um, books on demand for clients or customers. Okay. I do, we do realize that, that the, um, things will, will shift from, from a kind of a warehouse order fulfillment sort of process to a more, um, one that will require more technical um, support and that sort of thing. And part of what we're looking at also, Brian, is, is how, ways to provide that technical support and to support the libraries in doing so, because we know that that's coming. Karen, two, two comments and, and a question. Uh, the first comment is to congratulate you on the continuing upgrade process of BARD. Um, each, each new iteration of BARD actually adds some, some new features which are, which are handy and very appropriate and well thought out, and thank you very much for them. Uh, number two, um, one, of the, one of the features that has recently been talked about has been the development uh, of a procedure that talks about um, changing um, uh, the way that Braille is presented so that it, uh, so that it can be, um, can better accommodate uh, a variety of different note takers with displays of different lengths. Um, can, can you give us a report on what the status of that is and, and also tell us whether you've given any consideration to a request that we made in a resolution last year uh, that we extend the availability of Braille titles beyond those that are being produced uh, as hard copy Braille? Let me see. The first question is in a somewhat more technical way of saying it, can you, when you're talking about with BARD and with like BARD mobile and reading Braille, um, we've been working on ref on reflowing that material. But Judy, <laughs> please. <laughs> Looking for hands. 
Judy's closer to this than I am, so. Judy, clear in the back corner, yeah. I had trouble finding her the first time. You did. <laughs> Judy, I didn't know you had moved to the suburbs. I was hoping, hoping to be invisible, but it hasn't worked out. Um, in the idea of reflowing Braille is actually available now in Bard Mobile, and it can accommodate Braille displays from 12 to 40 characters in increments of two, and it's a smart reflow. It, it knows about paragraphs. It knows about hard page breaks. It knows about lots of things. It actually goes through the book and makes lots of decisions about how to reflow. Oh, Sorry? I thought you were asking a question. No. Oh, okay. Is that what you were asking about, Paul? Hold on, I can hear him. Okay, so your question is about when you say extending the titles beyond, you're saying having... So that's the second question. Yeah, that, I think that's the question he's asking. Is that can, right, Paul? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, okay, can I answer, I just want to tell you one other thing about Bard Mobile and Braille, and that is the version that we're working on now, which we're hoping to have out by uh, September or so, it's in beta now, has auto-scrolling. I know a lot of people have been looking forward to that. Auto-scroll. Auto-scroll. Thank you, Judy. Okay, wait, I don't think I answered Paul's second question. Paul, your second question, what was your question? Have you given any consideration to extending beyond hard copy Braille titles? Having, cop having digital Braille titles that are not done in hard copy? Chosen from the hard copy list, or or chosen as the full hard copy list, or however you choose them. But yeah, we are certainly look. Yes, we have. We are looking at um, at having. We, we really want to have a big tranche of new um, digital titles when the Braille e-reader becomes available. So we're definitely looking at at titles that would not be done in hard copy Braille initially. We will continue to do at least what we've been doing in hard copy braille. But one of the things that I really want to do is, is modernize that process as well so, um, so that we can actually get more, work, more, more braille done. But yes, we are looking at doing that. Let me tell you a little bit about BARD, just com what's coming. We are in the process of m moving BARD to the cloud, which won't affect you at the, at the other end of it, except that it will increase the capacity quite a bit. But the next step is to completely rewrite BARD and to make it um, a, a different animal. How much it will look exactly like it does now, we haven't gotten anywhere near that, but we have asked for $15 million to, uh, in, to, to do this rewrite because we know that with more people coming into the program and more digital use, we're gonna have to have a, a, a more robust, uh, modernized BARD, so we are working on that. So. Is the gentleman who's standing asking a question, or is he stretching? Thank you, Karen. Sure. Sir, are you asking a question? I'm coming your way. Thank you. Albert Anderson from Chicago. I'm now serving on my state's talking book and Braille service advisory committee. Uh, congratulations on the very successful program that you put together to increase the public awareness of the NLS program. Well, thank you. And you probably are aware that a good many of the new people who have uh, signed up for the program are older people losing vision and getting into the program for the first time. And now um, this came up in, in one of the uh, meetings that we had that one of these people called into the library and spoke directly to the director and she said, I'd like to have my name removed from the talking book list. You are not sending me any books that I like. And the director began to probe with this lady, you know, is, is there a, a certain uh, type of books that you, a certain subject area that you're not getting enough of? Uh, are, are, are you interested in a certain locality? As a further setting, or is, are you uh, are you wanting to know about a certain time period or something like that? And the lady always kept saying, "No, you you just are, are not sending me any any books I like." So the director actually went to the file and pulled the order form, the application form of this lady, looked carefully at it, and she said to the lady, "Well, 
I see here that you're requesting not to have any books sent that have strong language or violence or explicit sexual content. And the lady said, oh, my daughter filled that form out for me and she thinks I'm dead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, yes, we have, have had a pretty successful ad campaign. We will, it's gone quite well. We've gotten, a, I don't have statistics in front of me, but we've gotten a lot of response from it, both the TV and radio ads and the digital ads that we're doing. And um, we will be continuing the digital ads into the near future. The TV and radio ads probably need a reboot, so we have to look at that. But um, it's been a, been a good thing. It's Chris Hunsinger, and um, I want to tell you that the Pittsburgh Library loves its duplication on demand. They're thrilled that they are going to get rid of a lot of cartridges and a lot of, therefore have a lot more space. And secondly, this is like really off the wall, but you know, people who see learn things from ads in magazines. They may be, they may have their um, opinions shaped by the way the ads are presented, but they do learn some things. I mean, whether, you know, whatever. We should come up with a way to make a commercial stream of um, money for NLS by letting some ads into our magazines. That's an interesting thought. <laughs> There's something about the copyright law that doesn't allow us to do ads. <laughs> this is Adam Rushmore from Louisville. I have continually, over the many years, uh, asked Frank Kirk Silkey, and since then, uh, about whether books recorded prior to TV numbers would be digitalized if possible. Um, and when I say that, for instance, I personally have recovered um, several of those books from the Kentucky School for the Blind Library when they were being weeded and possibly discarded. And I, I think that uh, even if they're slightly scratchy or something, and a lot of them are in really good shape. Uh, to me, it's just like old-time radio recordings. People like to listen to those, even though the quality may not be pristine. And so I was wondering if that is being considered. I will also say, though, that um, recently I uh, received a book that I asked for, a Chinese Judge D book, Mystery, by Robert Van Gulick, which was a reissue of TB77. Oh. So uh, I think that's going back pretty well. We have many things to prioritize, and honestly, that's not on the list at this point. Um, we have done a few, and they're, um, well, you're right, they're kind of like old time radio, the quality's not very good. But as time goes forward, it may be that we have the capacity to do something like that. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think we've done some. We've done some scorby. I think the study in Scarlet is. Well, I, I understand. I'm glad that you got it. I remember reading Judge D back in the day. <laughs> Jeannie Johnson, Nashville, Tennessee. I have an Orbit Reader 20, which. I love to a certain extent, but um, when I've downloaded books from Bard in Braille, um, because, I guess it's because of the way the Orbit Reader is, I haven't been getting the regular page breaks and that kind of thing. You have to move down, like it, when you go down it moves like a thousand characters or something like that. And that's kind of inconvenient because I download books that I don't have to read straight through, like recipe books and knitting books where I want to get to a certain pattern or a certain recipe and it's really very difficult so am I supposed to be downloading all those things in a different way to get the page breaks and such? I believe that it has to do with the way that the Orbit is rendering the file. There's not a different way of downloading them. Right. Thanks, 
Okay, uh, Tom Frank from Vermont. I have two questions. We have, I know we had two devices with a digital download that you would talk to in the general session, and I wonder what the process of that and how long, I think you said five years, but that's where people who don't have access to Wi-Fi or paying for uh, cellular have access to download barred books. That's the one question. The other question, totally differently, is we fought in Vermont, they were gonna contract out the service, I think to Utah, mm. and we successfully fought that in the state and keep the library there. Is there any way that other states are you know, making sure the service, because when you have a state library, you can always call and ask for help and when it's contracted out, people aren't getting the help. Uh, and that's a question I have for other states. Now those are state decisions. So the first question that you had though, um, I'm not quite sure, but let me just say what I think you're asking. What we are looking at in about five years for people who don't have, aren't using Bard Mobile, people who aren't using you know, who are moving into the digital era, would be, if you can imagine, a lockdown, let's call it a lockdown smartphone. We're not talking about a phone per se, but like maybe an iPod sort of thing. But anyway, something that you would have um, the ability to download books from BARD, the ability for the network library to push books to this device so that if you're a person who doesn't choose their own books, and we have a number who aren't, who don't, that the libraries would be able to help manage them, their accounts so that they would be able to get books sent to them by the library, just like now they're getting them in the mail, but this way they would be getting them into the device. Um, the device will have a better name than the device someday. <laughs> but, and, I, and I can't tell you exactly what it will look like. Um, so. Does that answer the question? Because I'm not 100% clear on what your question was. For the rollout on that, five years? Oh, I would say probably five years. Okay. Probably some, some testing before that, but probably five years. Uh, Carrie Johnson from Nashville, Tennessee again, where we do read and wear shoes. Um, <laughs> my uh, work at the library as a volunteer um, one of the things I've done, I haven't done it too much lately, but is to create those cartridges uh, with multiple books for various, uh, you know, different readers as they request them. Uh, the program they use for that is something called CLAS, K-L-A-S. Are you uh -huh. familiar with that? I'm familiar with it, yes. Okay, does NLS control how that works? Uh, the reason I'm asking is because uh, the programs do not um, let you blow up the print so you can see it. Uh, it they're very uh, small print, every one of them, and it's very difficult for me. And, and also, the other uh, volunteer at our library is also low vision, so uh, I would imagine a lot of volunteers at these state libraries are also low vision, so if they could make that a little more accessible, that would be a great, great thing. Thank you. The uh, NLS does not, in fact, control class. Um, they do what they do in the libraries. The uh, state libraries contract with class, but, but we, don't, um, we don't control that. But your point is taken, thank you. last one. Well, good for him. He would have been in big trouble if he told me I could <laughs> ask a question. I've been quiet the whole time. So, <laughs> thank you, Brian. Thank you, thank you, Brian. I see. I was trying to be quiet. Um, a couple comments that I just wanted to make um, with respect to, I think, what Tom Frank said about um, contract services and um, and I would just urge you to, you know, monitor what your libraries are doing. Um, 
and I can speak to the fact that Perkins does provide contract services in the Braille area for several states, including North Carolina and Tennessee, uh, Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire, and Washington, D.C. So we provide Braille services, and um, I am the one specifically that is assigned to handle Braille readers in Tennessee. So I know that our Tennessee people get very good service because I do it myself. So, um, and we check the shelves and we do all kinds of stuff. And we have a collection that goes all the way back to the pretty much the beginning of time in the NLS calendar of time. Um, so it's quite extensive and um, it's been a pleasure to work with them. Um, in response to the question about CLOS, which is the Keystone Library Automation System, um, that's a, a private vendor. NLS doesn't have anything to do with CLOS. Um, but I do know that, that CLOS does have the ability to, um, to, it, you know, to use Zoom text or some other um, enhanced screen you know, magnification system to make the text on the screen work better for staff and volunteers. And there's key commands for accessibility, for shortcuts, and, and those kind of things. Um, I'm not 100% sure about how large the text can print out if that's what you were speaking about specifically on a label or a card because that's space is somewhat limited on a mailing card. We can't print too large. We're constrained by the post office and those kinds of things. But, um, but there are um, a lot of accessibility features in class. Otherwise, my library wouldn't be using it because I have like nine blind employees at my library. I have 30 staff. So... Um, so we definitely um, take advantage of all the um, large print and, and Braille and speech access features that are available in CLOS. So, all right. Thank you. That's it? Again, I want to take this opportunity to thank Karen for being here. Uh, the few times that she seemed to be more cryptic we all know who've been working in the field uh, or working with government in any place, whenever the word legal constraints as to what you can say and can't say or what you'll save yourself a lot of grief later if you keep your yap shut now is, <laughs> is a real thing if you want to move forward on a lot of things. Um, I'll, I'm going to just, uh, again, thank you, Karen, for being here, but I'm going to pontificate for two minutes. Okay. So I apologize. <laughs> and if you disagree with any of it, you're welcome. you got your own mic. True. So pontification. <laughs> One is the vast majority of people who are using our service are getting old like me. <laughs> Two, I run or have run for the past 34 years a computer training center. And so I know what digital technology can and cannot do. And I also know what that the world we live in, a person who has suddenly found themselves not being able to see print, thinks they can no longer use a telephone because they can't see the numbers. So we have to be very careful as we look at the future that we expand our offerings so that those who are not tech people Either they're not tech people because they're still in transition, and we certainly don't want them sitting at home thinking the world's over. Uh, but we really have to embrace this idea that there's more than one way to bring a book to people. And we have to support multiple ways to do that, as we're doing with refreshable Braille, etc. One thing NLS has never done is getting involved in large print. This morning we heard from uh, the president of CCLVI. I know that the Perkins Library, mostly because of its association with the uh, Worcester Sub-Regional Library, has a large print collection. And I would encourage you all to encourage your local libraries to remember that not all blind people can't read print. Some of them simply need print assistance to gain access to that print, not conversion entirely. 
uh, we're leaving out a big part of the population. What part of the population who are legally blind uh, have no usable vision? Pretty small part, right? So while I've been way past low vision for a lot of years, um, they are a huge component of our society that needs us to think about them and their needs to access the printed word. Uh, while I appreciate other print disabilities and believe they have every much right as I do to that, I do concern myself with the future of large print and how technology might improve that. And so the idea of an NLS large print reader is not something I would uh, oppose for that reason. Um, and again, if you've used Kindles and some of those things, if you're a large print user, um, they're a mixed blessing. Uh, I guess the last thing is, I think that there is value in my local association with my library. And there's a diminishing number of sub-regional libraries. What, what, am I misstating things? No. You're not misstating. Not misstating things. No. A, a significant reduction in local, sub-regional libraries that bring books to you. There's a, a different scenario, and I'm on the uh, NLS committee that picks award-winning libraries each year, uh, and I've enjoyed that thoroughly. Uh, but it also has educated me about the importance of sub-regional libraries, and uh, these, not so much a sub-regional, what's the other term? Uh, outreach centers. Um, outreach centers. Like and what, what they can do. And um, I would like to encourage NLS to support that idea of the sub-regional and support that idea of the uh, contact center so that we can bring books into people's lives through more than just the internet. So that's the end of my tirade. And I don't disagree. And you don't disagree, Most, Mostly. <laughs> mostly. Mostly. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, guess what it is? It is break time. So we're going to take a 15-minute break. We're going to be back here at 2.45. I'm going to be giving out that special number for your continuing education, folks. So you want to be here ready to write down a cockamamie list of letters and numbers. <laughs>